Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning in to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 254, and I am Ryan Tansom, your host. On today's show, we're going to be talking about how a founding entrepreneur grew and sold his tutoring business to private equity and then started a search fund. Today's guest is an education entrepreneur who searches for the right investment opportunities and companies to further serve that market. John Rood previously co-founded Next Step test preparation, which grew from a two-person tutoring company to one of the largest MCAT test prep companies, and he sold it to private equity in 2018. John runs us through why he chose private equity over other sale options, including an ESOP, and how that influences the companies he's vetting out and looking to invest into today. John's definitely not shy about diving into how search funds operate, what makes an attractive acquisition target for the search fund, how the capital structure influences a purchase, and the incredible value of long-term planning for entrepreneurs and the things that he would have done differently at his previous business and how knowing what he knows now and planning ahead can give you insights about how to use your business as a vehicle to accomplish your long-term goals and ultimate lifestyle. I'm excited to dive into his insights with you today because we share so many of the same principles. In fact, John is able to highlight how Arcona's intentional growth principles can be used as a guiding lens to make sure that you're taking that vision that you have for your business and actually making it a reality by building a plan today. John's an excellent case study on how intentional planning can help you accomplish your long-term goals and use your business as a vehicle by growing value to accomplish what you want long-term. So without further ado, here's my interview with John. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to Arcona.io or visiting the show notes. John, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Doing good. I am super excited to have this conversation. You and I talked, what was it, man? Like a year and a half ago or something like that? Because literally it was like, it. the world was normal. <laughs> it, time we talked. it was like February or March. Uh, and yeah, the world was normal because you invited me to an in-person event in like late April. And I really oh, wanted yeah, to go to it, it. That did not work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't have to like notify you that it wasn't going down because we were all sitting in our basements. It's very point. clear. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited to have you on because, you know, when we were talking, I think you were even going through like, Hey, what am I going to be doing next? And I know we're going to get to that in the the second half of the, the conversation, but for everybody that's listening in, like, why were we talking? What are you doing? Just give us the cliff note version of, of John and your background, and then we can go back to how you started the business and some of the, uh, the growth stories along the way. Yeah, totally. So um, when I, I came out of graduate school in an academic program, I thought I wanted to be a professor. And then it turned out that I was not going to be one of like the top three people in, in the world in my field. I, I didn't think so. I, I had to get, figure something else out. So I went into management consulting, um, which is like what kind of smart people do when they can't figure out what else to do in life. And I did that for three years. And it was great. It was a really good experience, actually. And then after that, I did that for three years. And I was like, okay, I got to figure something else out. This is not what I want my whole life to be. So I'd had this experience teaching test prep tutoring at Kaplan several years ago, right after I got out of undergrad. It's like, okay, like what skills do I have? Like what business can I start? Like, wait a second. Like I know how to do, I know how to do test prep, right? So my wife had also been at Kaplan and we started a little test prep tutoring company here in Chicago. And what we thought we would do is we would, we would teach people how to take the law school admissions test. Um, and we started to do that got a little bit of success there. And then um, fast forwarding the story over the course of the next eight years, 
we built a, a pretty nice company, uh, which was one of the leading players in the medical college admissions test, MCAT, test prep world. Mm. We got that to some scale, and then we were able to sell that company successfully to private equity in 2018. So much to unpack there too, because I'm sure it was super easy the whole time, right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. So we had some challenges. Yeah. It, like, what was it like? Like, we tell, go back to like when you and your wife were talking about that. Like, what what was going through your head? I mean, what was the plunge like? I mean, was it like, hey, let's just get this? Or did it, was, was people knocking on your door going, hey, there's a demand here. If you just, you know, put a hang a shingle, was it is it easy to acquire the customers or? Yeah, she, she and I actually remember why we started that company very differently, um, which is interesting. And now this was this is ten years yeah. ago now, so I, I don't know. She's probably right. Um, my memory <laughs> of it was, I thought I needed something to do because I was going to go to either law school or business school, and I needed, and it was like just a weird time in the year because it was like not the right time to apply to law school or business school. So I was like, okay, I'll start something and I'll do it, and if I get into a great law school or business school, like I'll go do that in, instead. Um, and then it took off, and it was it was clear that that I'm not going to go to law school at that point. And in terms of your your question, like where was the demand? The demand was definitely there. I mean, the the niche that we picked was individual one on one tutoring, which was a thing that you know every every company offered for sure, but they didn't really want to. Like Kaplan wanted to teach like larger classes um, and didn't really spend a lot of time on their tutoring program. So that's kind of where we where we said, you know, there's definitely demand here. Like we've seen it ourselves as instructors. Let's put up some ads on Craigslist, which is how we started advertising and see what happens. So what was your wife's reasoning? <laughs> her, so her memory of it was that like, we wanted to start something and make it really big and sell it. And I don't remember doing, like, I don't remember being that ambitious in, in 2009, but I think that she saw the same things, right? She had been an instructor mm -hmm. way back at, at Kaplan too, and kind of saw the same market opportunities that, that we did. So I, what's so interesting is, uh, did your guys' vision evolve, like what you wanted with the business evolve? And I, I don't know if that came to a head, like how you guys perceived the business and what you wanted it for long-term, or did you, guys, did you guys have like discussions and trying to reconcile that when you guys were about to sell? Yeah, I, I think that, when we got to the point that we were ready to sell, I think we had accomplished most of what we had kind of set out to do. Um, okay. But what we'd set out to do was, I think, very distinct from where we'd started. And I, I, I think that when we started out, you know, basically we wanted to have like a nice little company that could kind of like pay the bills. And I just, I don't think that I, I personally, I don't think I had a lot of ambition surrounding it. And you know, ran a nice company where we served our our students and our customers really well. For a couple of years, but then I think there was definitely a turning point where, you know, me and and my wife and then our our management team, where we were finally able to kind of get some some really great managers on board. This was about like 2013. We saw the opportunity in this kind of like pre medical prep market where it wasn't just like okay, here's some kind of like blue ocean that we could that we could sail to. It was more like there's a huge opportunity here. I mean, it's it's a that's a a multi eight figure market. And mm -hmm. it's also a thing where if we do it really well, we'll feel really good about it, right? Like if we're oh, successful yeah. in helping students kind of on their journey to medical school, like all eyes are on the medical profession now, right? Um, just given what just happened over the last year. Um, but even back then, it's like, if we can help these kids like like become doctors, like that's like a really good thing we can do in the world. So I love how, it, and I don't remember, John, did we talk about conscious capitalism last time we chatted? I think we were talking about like some of those same themes yeah. a little bit because you, you just hit a chord with me with like do good and make a, and make money and have right. a business and aligning those things. And were you, were you guys on track? Was, was that like a component that you thought was missing prior to that 20, 2013 turning point or? Yeah, I, I think that was missing. And I think that when I started, it was like, here's a thing where we can do to make money. And if, if we could make some money selling widgets, or if we could like pay the bills with like a really good lemonade stand or something, we would have done any of that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that like one of the major turning points from myself at, and our team from like, kind of like stabbing in the dark and trying to make something work to like figuring out like what we're actually trying to do and, and really being able to attack it was putting that kind of like meaning and purpose behind the company. Uh, I think that we had 
a really impactful meeting in 2013. I still remember it. And I was, I was so cheap. I didn't even rent a meeting room for this. Like we met in like the corner of a restaurant for like four hours. Uh, <laughs> and the thing that we did that really was a turning point was we put in traction. And I know that, you know, mm-hmm. you know, traction, mm-hmm. your audience has had a hundred conversations about that, but just putting some frameworks around, like, what are we trying to do here? Why is this better than like, if we, worked at Philip Morris or like the vape company trying to sell cigarettes to children. Like why are, why are, why is this better than that? And right. I think that was a, that was a real turning point for us. Super cool. So you had talked about the type of business that you're in that also evolved. So it sounded like that turning point was kind of a mental shift and a, like a, you're seeing the strategies and aligning what your meaning and purpose is with your clients and what you're doing. But you also had, now you can qu- quickly articulate the different business that you grew into yeah. compared to, so why don't you kind of give the the overview of how the business model started and where you ended up and then talk about the, the challenges of shifting from the service to the content. Because I think it's just an interesting challenge, John, that a yeah. lot of companies have right now. Yeah, sure thing. So when we started and for the first three years of our of our business, every dollar of revenue was tutoring. So it was one tutor, one student, and that worked really well. And we were able to get that model to a couple million dollars in, in revenue, which was a, it's a nice, nice niche business at the time. But we saw that there was this opportunity to move into more of the content development. So like we're in test prep, we were in medical test prep. So if you're going to like publish a, like a, like a book or uh, an online course or have software, it's not just like, you can't just like write it up the way that you can write up like, uh, I don't know, like a like an English literature textbook or something. Like you have to have like diagrams, right? And, and medical You're illustrations <laughs> and, and yeah. all this stuff, right? And here's the story of how I figured out that that's what we should do is an interesting story because I think that one thing that I did totally accidentally in my business, but I would always do it again now and recommend that everyone does it, is we put together uh, kind of like a little board of advisors early on in our business, really before we we needed to. And I wasn't setting out to do it, but the, the way that we found this was so so random. I was going out trying to find our first like actual office space. And so I met like this commercial real estate broker and she was like, oh, what's, what's your business? So I told her and she's like, oh, I just like matched an apartment or a condo with a guy who was in that business. I was like, oh, what's his name? Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, his name is Chris. And he's, he worked at the Princeton Review and now he does something else. So she gave me the contact information. And so I called Chris and we're like, let's meet. And he became an advisor for our company. And that was a huge turning point because I had not had people on staff that had like worked at the big companies in a senior enough role to kind of like know know how they worked. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we were able to see like, okay, like there's a big opportunity here in this medical world. Like let's, let's go attack it. Let's go get the right people, the right staff and and kind of go after it. So what were the conversations and like, and like, why did that make sense for you guys to change the business model? And, and just some thoughts behind that, John is like, a lot of people like I'm watching service companies right now when they're going, um, I want to have a plan down the road, but like, oh, it's only one times revenue and it's going to be mainly an earnout. And this is marketing agencies, CPA firms, law firms, consulting firms, any service-based business where they're going, oh my gosh, I don't have a thing here unless it's a machine that like they've somehow figured out had to like a staffing machine or whatever, you know, like there can be service businesses, but like what, what you're talking about Usually the epiphany happens when people don't have the energy to mm-hmm. change a business model or, you know, you're talking about the reinvestment for years and then, you know, waiting for the return. So how did that conversation flow? Was it Chris is explaining like, hey, here's here's what the outcome could be of what you have. And maybe we should think about this or like, how did that evolution happen in your mind? Yeah, I think that, I mean, first of all, there's a there's kind of like a switch that gets thrown where you kind of learn what the exit options are. And of course, like that's that's why we're all here listening to your podcast is to understand that a little bit better. Um, but like when I started out, like if you would have asked me, like, is it possible to sell a business? I'd be like, yeah, I guess so. I don't know how any of that works. Um, <laughs> right. So like figuring out like how do those mechanics work? First of all, like making that a thing that I cared about in life was very valuable. So like the work that that you and your team do, I, I think that's really valuable work. What I learned when I started looking into that was kind of exactly what you were saying, right? So if you have a services business that doesn't really have much of a moat around it and kind of like anyone could could do it, like if they got your book of business, the only thing that's valuable is that book of business. 
exactly as you said, like maybe that's worth one times revenue, two times, you know, earnings, something like that. But as you start to kind of move up, like in the education world, I'm sure it's, it's the same other places, right? So then you're like, okay, now we have some sort of like kind of like tech enabled services where we're doing some more interesting things with like matching and, and all that stuff. Like that's worth more. Then if you move into content, that's worth more than that. And then if you move into kind of like software, SaaS, like recurring revenue type stuff, then that's worth that's worth even more. So I do think that, you know, I kind of got religion around if we want to have a company that's valuable as a, a, a as an enterprise, yeah, we've kind of got to get out of just doing the services. Okay, so love it. I love this, uh, <clears throat> the continuum that you threw out there too. And how did you start to care about this, John? And I'm asking this out of total curiosity because I watch it where like trying to penetrate that is so difficult because you, you've been sitting in these CEO peer groups too and oh, I'll just talk about that later. And by yeah. the time they realize it, then they're burnt out or the timeline's you know weighed urgent. And how did you, what conversation or book or some something happened where you're like, oh, this is how valuations work and how this, why this should be important to me? I think it was a couple of things that we did. So first of all, um, one of the things that Chris, my advisor did for me is kind of take me around um, and start to meet a bunch of private equity folks that he had known. And he went to like a, you know, elite business school. So a lot of his friends ended up in private equity and, you know, it wasn't like, we're going to, we're not going to like do a roadshow, try to sell it. But it's like, Hey, you know, can you take a 30 minute meeting with this young entrepreneur who's in this space? that's kind of hot. So I met three or four folks in there and, you know, I, I, that was good to have those conversations. And then like, just the conversations coming out of it is like, how do these people's minds work? Like, how do these Mm -hmm. valuations work? That's how I started to learn more about it. I think it was valuable to start kind of like tracking other companies in the space. Cause like we were in a really little niche, but in like the broader world of education, even the broader world of like test prep, companies get bought and sold. And if you have a good network, you can kind of like poke around and see like, okay, like what was the valuation and what was driving that? So was there anything like as you're having these conversations, just, I mean, isn't it crazy how you start to like shift your mindset? You're like, oh, totally. Like it's not just top line revenue and the amount of employees. Yeah. <laughs> There's something else we're starting to solve for. As you were talking about, like you want to align yourself with some more purposeful meaning with the business and doing this, how did you, were there any exercise to align the investments that you're going to make in the business and the, like the value that you were going to get out of it with the meaning? Like, how are you, how are you keeping some of these long-term goals in, in alignment with each other? Or did you have struggles with it? I don't, yeah, I don't think that we did a good job of doing that purposefully. And the reason is like, I think that the way that those things get articulated within the business ends up being a little different because, you know, we had, we had a couple different kind of like small shareholders, but I was like the lion's share of, of the equity holder of the company. And so when you think about like, you're going to go stand in front of your whole company, it's like in all hands, like, what are you going to talk about? We're going to talk about our mission, our vision and our values. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to talk about like, how can I get like a Ferrari out, out of this, right? Like that's like not the topic that you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, right. That's not going to motivate a bunch of people. Right? Yeah, right. Exactly. That's that's not really motivating to me either. But, right. you know, you kind of see where the example is, right? There's mm-hmm. there's a certain subset of equity holders that care about the enterprise value of the business. And then there's a much larger piece of the of, of your business, of your customers, of your employees that care about are we doing something that's that's good for the world? Am I respected by my manager? Is my compensation fair? And those those do I think ended ended up being kind of like separate categories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true, man. Like it's amazing that people like they just want to wake up, care about what they're doing, have totally. a good job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. And and the vast majority of people like that's that's the right fit for them, and that's mm-hmm. that's why there's entrepreneurs and there's kind of like everyone else in the world. So the one challenge that I've had um, other people describe, and I personally went through it in a division of our business that we sold of changing a business model, right? Mm-hmm. So like, because it has everything to do with like cash flow, payment terms, how much you're going to reinvest. Because you go from a service-based business and you're making a spread on people to yep. all of a sudden you're like, okay, now I have to reinvest the biz- the money into content and or software that might have a, a like a, what a lot of other people that I've seen, John, where they, it's a more of a subscription base or whatever. So the cash flow, it's a re- reinvesting and then you're building more enterprise value, but you have my uh, like a lower monthly payment and you're going, okay, I don't even know mechanically if this can work with the operations of our business. Did you guys, how did you guys go through that, that, that planning process? Honestly, 
<laughs> we, I, I think we got lucky. So the short answer is that we got lucky and also a little bit smart just based on the kind of business that we were running. So we had a very good cash flow, cash cycle of business, right? Mm-hmm. So in, mm-hmm. in the test for business, you get paid up front by the customer and then you pay your instructors as they as they provide the course, right? They're they're you know employees and they get paid bi-weekly or whatever. So the cash profile of that business is very good. I always encourage like when I talk to young, young people like college students or entrepreneurs are starting out trying to think about what business can I run? Like think about starting with a business where the cash cycles are really good, right? Think about like if you start an agency, right? Like where your client is going to pay you a chunk up front and they don't have to pay your people for 30 days, right? That stuff is very important. So to answer your question, like we had spent the last, you know, three or four years putting together a really nice services-based company where the cash flow profile was really good and where there is enough left over where we're able to kind of take quite a bit out of it. Like I actually think I, th- I took too much out of the business. If I had to do it again, I would have invested more, but we were lucky that we didn't have to sit down with like sharpened pencils and figure out like mm-hmm. how we're going to keep the lights on this month as we, as we made these new investments. Super, super interesting. And yeah, I like, I totally, I love it because the, a lot of those service-based businesses that can make the shift don't have a good cash flow cycle. Like you're yeah. talking about, I mean, like it's not the upfront or, I mean, it's because and where I mechanically see the challenge, John, is like people are like, okay, well, if I'm making a half a million dollars and I got to pay my taxes, I got to, you know, live their life, a lot of lifestyle creep happens. Um, mm-hmm. I see it all day long. And then they're like, well, the only way to make this work is to reinvest and I need those distributions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then totally. therefore, just like a, it's like a complete personal, the Ferrari versus the the software. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And I, that's a, that's a hard question for a lot of entrepreneurs. It's a very personal question. The, the way that I think about it now, and if I was going to kind of start, do it again, is you really have to separate out your labor from, from your equity, right? And so I think a lot of people I love fail. It. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, like, that's a good feedback. Um, <laughs> like a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs just like kind of like take some money out of the business and there's no rhyme or reason to it. I'm a big proponent that like basically as soon as you can, you have to pay yourself a salary, right? And your salary has to cover your living expenses at first, but then you get past that and you have to pay yourself like your actual cost of labor. Because if you don't, it's unclear how much money you make. And then when you, uh, if you are interested in selling the business, then it's it's very hard for the buyers to like put a value on your labor. And I see this as like now a buyer of businesses all the time where there's like a CEO who's like well-known in the industry. He's been doing it for 20 years. The business makes millions of dollars. You're like, look at this line item. It's, it's like, okay, like, What's what's the salary if I have to replace him? And like they've like penciled in like fifty thousand dollars or something, and like you're not going to get like a top CEO for that. So I, I think like both from a perspective of managing the business and from a perspective of having books that like make some element of sense, you got to pay yourself a salary. Dude, I, I literally love it. And the reason I was like cheering is because my partner Pat and I have done multiple podcasts where we talk about shifting your mindset away from annual income to mm-hmm. long-term value creation because in the number one way to do that is to say what do you actually get paid for your management role like yeah. and live your in your lifestyle should be managed within that cash flow your household income and then the other stuff is going towards your net worth and people when they conflate those two that's where these decisions of how to reinvest in the business and what do i want to do with the long term everything just can gets conflated together yeah totally yeah, it's a, it's interesting that you you said it that way. I think it's it, it's it's obviously a thing. We know that, right? And it's and there's mechanical ways you can, you know, bifurcate the two and then make decisions on each of those routes. When you guys are going through the uh, like what to do with the business, you talked about the continuum of like the services to then content to then SaaS. Like, what what was the decision tree that you guys went through, and like how did you decide to and to go the route you did, and what was the the final outcome? So. From our tutoring business, we then went into practice tests and print publications. We invested a ton of time and energy into that. And and as I had mentioned, you know, five or 10 minutes ago, when you're doing that in the medical field, that's not just like writing text, that's the illustrator and that's the proofreader. And you have to get, you have to get like expensive people that know what they're talking about uh, in in these industries. (laughs) Not just 800 word blogs. Yeah. Right. Like you can't just like (laughs) make up like how the heart works. Like you have to have someone that that knows. Um, And one of the things, like the one of the turning points in our business, is we were able to hire um, a guy who became my my business partner named Brian, who had a ton of experience doing content creation, 
had gone to medical school briefly, like had just had this, this great experience and like was like a super great person, like a person of like very high integrity, very high work ethic, um, good manager. And that was like sort of an accident. Like he applied to be an instructor for us and we hired him as a part-time instructor. And then like when it was time to think about this stuff seriously, he's like going through like, who can help me with this? Like, oh, well, here's this person that can do it. I take it like, and then like extrapolating that, like what I did in the future for that was like, you have to have a bench of people that you can kind of like go hire and do that. Right. And I think that I probably didn't understand starting out, like how possible it would, it would be to go hire really good people. Like as long as you were aligned in terms of like the vision and values, like you can approach like good people. You don't just have to get like only really inexpensive people out right out of school. Wow, man. I put an exclamation point behind that, John, because like I, I got a bunch of clients that we're working with right now and like they've got a plan. Like, so they went through the training, they got a plan and then they, they got a good strategic plan. They got the financials now. And then they're still like entertaining. Like they got this five-year plan where it's like, you got all this confidence. You can hit this. And they're, they're still entertaining these potential out of the blue offers, which is totally normal. And I, I think advised on, but the when I watch them gravitate towards it and I'm watching, it's like nine out of 10 times is because they don't have the executive team in place that they yes. feel confident is going to own the outcome, John. And so they still carry all the burden of the stress. And it's sure. interesting to what you just said is like this bench. I think a lot of people underestimate that if you want to hire someone for $125,000, it's like a sports team. You go recruit. Right. Like yeah. you, there's not only one person out there that can right. do it. And it's your neighbor that you met 20 years ago. Yeah. Like, yeah. What did you, when you think about it, what is, how did you come to that realization that there is a bench and you can actively find these people? Where, how did you get that exposure? Uh, so the first thing I did was I, I went through this like blossoming that most entrepreneurs I know go through where you realize that you are not the best and smartest person in the world. And that's like a life changing experience. Um, because like, that's like, like theoretically, you know, that you are not the smartest person, but for example, I had handled all the sales in our business for like the first three years. And I was like, I don't know why I thought this. I was like, I can't hire someone to do this. Like only I can do this. And then I wanted to like go on vacation. So I brought in someone to do sales who had been on my, on my part-time team and they did a great job on sales. Like, oh, wait a second. Like I can get someone who, you know, and I'm like, I'm like probably 28 years old at the time. like, I don't have that much experience. I can get someone that can do this. And then hired someone who started then like the first month eclipsing my sales totals and then hired a second person who started eclipsing the first person's sales totals and hired a third person who was even better, right? And then started eclipsing like those people's like sales totals. And, and then we're kind of like off to the races. Then it's like, okay, like there's people that are better than me at literally every piece of the business. Like I might not be replaceable as the entrepreneur, but every role, every hat that I wear there's someone better out there and I just need to go, I need to go find them. And to your point, like they don't just apply on indeed.com or whatever. Like you have to get in your network. You have to get on LinkedIn. You have to go like search these people out. So that's awesome. The, as you guys are off to the races, where did you, and you've got the right, and you've talked about the shift in the mindset of value creation, which is why you're aligning your strategies, you're hiring some people. And so I'm kind of seeing the progression here. Where is it that you're like, that you started saying, okay, it might be time to start thinking about this in the near term instead of more of like this longer term goal of selling the business? I thought about it. There's a couple of things that happened. First of all, I think we got to a, a scale of the business where it was going to be hard to make another big jump. Like as, as you think about valuations, like larger companies are worth disproportionately more than smaller companies. So if you have a business that's doing half a million dollars in earnings, if you're able to 4X that business to a $2 million in earnings, that business isn't worth only four times as much. It's worth like eight times as much or 10 times as much. So I think that we kind of crossed that threshold where, you know, we would get a fair offer that wasn't, you know, that wasn't really tiny. Secondly, I had just, I, I do think I kind of like run out of energy a little bit on doing that, that day to day. Like I'd been in that business for eight years at that point and some change. And like, I still loved it, but I felt like, I feel like I love the people a lot, but like the business itself, um, mm -hmm. like I felt like I could have, I could have seen a change in my life. Right. And, I, and every day, like I still like, I miss the people that we had in, in that business. But in terms of like the day-to-day -day of that business, it felt like it was a good point to transition. So 
what was the, how did you start to explore that then? Cause I know we're going to go through this and we want to talk about what you're doing now because you've got a lot on this side of the table of the buyer side is a way different perspectives. And so I want to get, make sure we get there. And what is the exploration that you started to go through? And you talked about like, there's a point where you kind of know the exit options. And now with the search fund, you're one of them. You got ESOPs, private equity, strategics, internal, or keeping the business, you know, as a yeah. passive investment, how did how did you vet those out or what did you go through any kind of like mental exercise to say, okay, I think that this is the route. And then how did you go explore it? Yeah, totally. So I guess I'll start with the things that we didn't, we didn't really consider. So we didn't really consider ESOP type stuff. Cause I had seen a couple of people that had done that. It seemed very complicated. It seemed like it was better for businesses that were slightly larger and again, like I don't like that's like that's like my uneducated bias about that. So I mm-hmm. so I don't know, right? I, I, yeah, I could probably learn though. more about that. Keeping the business, that's that's interesting. And I thought a lot about that. And I think that's an underappreciated option for a lot of business owners to just go hire, hire a CEO and then go do something else. I thought though that our our business was it, it grew super fast, but another competitor could also grow grow, grow mm-hmm. super fast in that space. So I felt that like there was an element of risk there as opposed to like, if we would have had a company that had been there for 30 years and we owned a factory, like that's a very different mm-hmm. kind of business in terms of stability. Mm-hmm. So I think strategic buyers were interesting. I think private equity buyers were interesting. Um, we ended up getting an offer. It was actually that the company that ultimately bought us like, was the one that sent us the first kind of serious offer that we had. Um, and then we were able to kind of go vet that out in the marketplace a little bit before deciding. Did you... So did you hire an intermediary investment banker, banker, broker? Yeah, we hired a banker. So any thoughts on good, uh, good approach, bad approach? Yeah, I think that it's probably worth it. Um, like I think that it's a, that is, is in itself a process. So I think if you're going to hire an intermediary, it's, it's, you can't just like hire the first one. Like you've got to get intros to a couple people, see who's doing a lot of deals specifically in your industry. And then, and then make the choice. And I think that a good one pays for him or herself easily, but I think it's, it's not like guaranteed that you'll get a good one is, is kind of how, how I felt over the yeah, years. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? And, and you said you, you specifically said banker. So you, I'm a, it sounds like, you know, the major difference between brokers and bankers. Yeah. We were of the size where it, it made sense for us to uh, pursue a, a, a banker. Did your, did your mentor, Chris, help you go through this of what, what to look totally. for, like the fee structures and all? Because I think, like you said, I think it, the, I don't know if there's any stats out there, but like, I know that Americans, they, I think it's like nine out of 10 homeowners f- hire their first real estate agent that they come across. <laughs> yeah. And I think the broker intermediary world is the same way, Yeah. but there's so much hair to the deal. If you don't understand their fee structure and how they get paid, how they marketed it. I mean, any... Totally. I mean, did you kind of go through and you have an understanding when you were vetting them out? Yeah, I don't know. Like I, we looked at a couple of people and the fee structures were generally kind of similar. We also negotiated a, a, a kind of like an abbreviated fee structure because we didn't run a full auction process. Like we had an offer in hand okay. that we thought was good, which we could then kind of take out to the market to vet as opposed to like having to go through a whole 18 month mm-hmm. process. But I, I totally agree with you. Like, it's one of those things like you just, you don't know, right? If someone's like, oh yeah, it's 5%. Like, you're not, is that good? It should be three, should it be eight? Like, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And what do and I, unlike get, real what estate, do I like, get for the money, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, then what are you going to do is the other is the other really good question. Um, Super helpful. And uh, what, <clears throat> it's interesting that you said that you had a, an offer that um, was out of the boo. My partner and I just did a podcast about what do you do with an out of the boo offer? I'm seeing it all day, every day. Yeah, and totally what you did is like pretty much our recommendation is like, Hey, like just because you can have the blue offer, don't just jam it through with an attorney, right? Like you can negotiate some reduced fees and like go through at least a process of, you know, a, a different kind of process, but at least one where you're not negotiating everything yourself because yeah. you got to work with the people afterwards. Yeah, totally. How did you, so did the, the, person you sold to, the company you sold to, or were they the one that had the original offer? And then yeah. what did you learn by vetting out a couple other ones? Or what was the, uh, what led you to to make the deal, consummate the deal with that uh, original offer? We thought at the time that the offer financially was was very fair. We thought that the people involved were generally good people. And so that's kind of like the basis of, of, of the decision that we made. 
And then in, you said it was a uh, private equity firm, right? Correct. Yeah. And what's so interesting, John, is I'm seeing a lot of people are like, oh, I'm just going to sell to a strategic in my industry. And they don't, re- you know, a lot of people don't realize that half your the strategic people in your industry are back, backed by private equity firms. <laughs> right, that's true. So it's, that's yeah, true. Yeah. Private equity is eating the world. Um, so did you, did you vet out a couple other companies at the same time? And then there was a certain reasons that led you to the, the, that direction? Yeah, we did. I mean, we, we, we got, we got some offers. We got an offer from a, from a strategic decided that just wasn't, it wasn't the right fit. It wasn't the best offer financially for us. So it just was not worth it. So the deal goes through what happens afterwards. Did you work for the company for a while? And yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I, I kept working for the company. I worked there for about 18 months and then ended up leaving at, geez, what year was that? I get my years confused now. End of 2019, um, left that role. Yeah. Years confused. Exactly. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things that I, I think you and I, when we had talked about 18 months ago, the podcast I used to have the title be called life after business. Mm-hmm. And it was honest to God. Cause I was like, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Like I, like my whole identity and all my skill sets were wrapped up in a different industry. And I think you were kind of along that journey of figuring out what you want to do. So was it weird all of a sudden being an employee? And then did you start kind of the soul searching while you were there? Or like, how did, how did it all like expand, ex- expand on your journey to getting to where you're doing what you're doing now? Yeah, totally. I'm, I feel like I'm still like definitely on that, on that journey too. Like you have not, <laughs> too, not concluded. One of the things I do in retrospect, I don't know that I ever sat down with like a piece of paper and was like, what do I want my life, my work life to be? for the next like 30 years or however long it would be. And, and like, weirdly, like, you know, I'd, I'd been in entrepreneurs organizations. So we do a lot of that kind of activity, like a lot of visioning stuff. And so I knew like what I wanted my family life to be. I knew what I wanted my, like my marriage life to be my spiritual life. But I don't know that I'd sat down and said like, here's what I want to accomplish in my career. Like when I'm, when I'm 60, I'm doing that stuff now. And I wish I would have done it back then. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that that helps. It really helps like guide your understanding of, are you making the right long-term choices or mm-hmm. not? Um, now on the other side of that, if you said like, well, here's what I want to accomplish, but then someone comes along with you and offers you like a dump truck full of money, like to, to right to like sell your business. That's something that, that you have to evaluate seriously, right? Because like being able to feed and clothe and educate your children in perpetuity is like, is like a very serious matter. Right. And that's like, to me, like that's a more serious matter than like, do I feel fulfilled even if my business fails and I can't, and then I have to like go get a job and it, and it's, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So I wish I would have thought, put more thought into it then. Um, you know, that said, I think like after, after you, to your point, after you've sold your identity is different and you have to kind of like figure it all out again. And that's, that's partially where I think I am today. It's painful, man. Like it emo- yeah. it's just a bizarre situation. And even at, my age I mean, and like doing it when I've watched people that are fifties and sixties, I mean, that's even harder because you're you got yeah. decades more on top of the <laughs> right. situation. What, what exercises have you gone through right now that are helpful? Or like, if you were to go back to yourself five years ago and say, Hey, just think about these couple things, you know, in no particular order, like what would you tell yourself? I think that before anyone sells their business or like meaningfully changes their roles in their business, you have to know what you want to do next. And you have to, and it has to kind of fit in with the, with the why, like, why are you trying to accomplish this? Like, why are you trying to sell your business? And, you know, as I said previously, I think it's fine to say, I want to sell my business because it's important for me to make money and take trips off the table. Like that's very, a very reasonable thing to say, but then like, how do you position yourself for what you want to do next? I think is important. And in terms of, resources that I used for that. Um, I used, man, I'll have to, I'll have to look up the title and send it to you, but there's a book about like lifestyle design from like a design perspective from like Stanford graduate school. Oh, of business. super cool. You know, do you know that book? No, but that, that's, that sounds that's awesome, a good though. book. Yeah. I'll, I'll look up, I'll look up the notes. Secondly, I um, started working with a therapist, which I recommend for everybody. Um, I think that like, especially now, like no one's mental health is, is in great shape. That's very valuable. And one of the things that came out of that was after, for reasons that I'm, I'm happy to talk about in a second, like it's now been a year and I like, I'm still like basically trying to figure it out. And I'm like, okay, I'm talking to my therapist and I'm like, well, you know, what am I going to tell people? 
if, why have I been out of work for so long? He's like, who do you think cares about that? And I was like, I'm the only person that cares about that. Like, right. Like you, Ryan, like you don't care, right. You've got your own, your own life. You don't care how long it takes to figure it out. Like my wife doesn't care. My, my kids don't care. Like they love it. The daddy's home and not at the office nine hours a day. So I think like part of it is shedding those societal expectations mm-hmm. about what I should be doing. I just spent a week with my dad who's 79 and he's like, well, what are you doing for work? He's like, I don't, I, I don't know, dad. Like, I don't really like need to go get a job right now. I was like, well, what are you doing for work? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It's so interesting, John, because the, the entire reason I'm doing what I'm doing right now, the podcast, the company and everything, I read Bo Burlingham's book, Finish Big. Have you ever read yeah, that book? Yeah, totally. That's a great book. I, and he said in there, he was like, the worst question you can ask someone that sold the business is what are you doing now? Right. Oh, I'm just, uh, I used to be an owner of this yeah. business. And like, and like, it's so crazy. Like it's a paralyzing situation to people. And I've had people on the show that have made more money than you. And I would know what to do with in totally. a lifetime. And they're on a vengeance to go like prove to the world that there were something now. Yeah. And I'm just like, man, you, like maybe John can give you their, his therapist. Now. <laughs> save, <laughs> yeah, you, right. save you millions of dollars a <laughs> year. But uh, it's, it's an interesting experience. So as you were doing those exercises, John, what did you start to realize about yourself of like what tasks that you like to do that makes you fulfilled, but also the causes that you're reaching out to? I mean, like, did you start to get some clarity on that? Yeah, totally. So a couple of things that I, that I realized was number one, I think it's, I think it's all about the people, like the people and the, the human relationships that we surround ourselves with is, is absolutely critical. And what I miss about the business that I ran, like, I don't really miss like dealing with customer complaints. Like, I don't, and like even the positive stuff, like, I don't even, I don't really miss like doing the books at the end of the month, see how much money I made. Like, I miss working with those people. And mm-hmm. so putting myself in situations where the people are great, like, honestly, like that, that's the most important thing for me. I think that to your point, like working on a cause that I care about, even like just a little bit, I, I think is, is so important because there's got to be reason to get up in the morning and go do it when it's hard. I think like those have been, those have been some of the key learnings so far. Dude, this is so crazy because you're bringing up topics that I talk about every day and it's just bizarre sure. to me because, because I'm like for like years, I would, like after like hundreds of interviews, I'd be like, honestly, what I've gathered, there's only two questions that every, every person should ask themselves every morning if the money's not an issue, right? Cause like money, we have to solve for that. Yeah. And we're going to do things we don't want to do if we need the money. But the moment that the money is taken care of, there's two questions. Who do I want to work with and enjoy? And what challenging problems do I want to solve that I get fulfilled with? Because if you work with really good people, but you hate the problem, it's not going to be enjoyable. But if you like the problem, but don't like the people, it's going to be a problem. I mean, exactly. you just nailed yeah, that's, just, that's, that's exactly right. So then how, when you started looking at this, is that, you know, you probably were going, okay, uh, am I going to get a job somewhere? Am I going to be on boards or charities? Like now you're getting to the point of like, what are you going to do with this? So I like, was there a a list of choices that you started going through or how did that experience go? Yeah. I tried to try a bunch of different things as, as best I could. Um, well, first of all, like I took some time off and I think everyone should take some time off when they can, um, like not like that's such a privilege to like be in your thirties and like not have to work for even like a month. Like, just like how some how so many people have to struggle like in our society with how it's constructed take like a week of vacation if you have a job like take some time like if you can afford to take some time so i did that and then and then covid hit and so then i watched my kids for 3 months which was great right and actually like that's going to be i think one of the best times of my whole life is spending like those that time with my kids when they were young enough to want to hang out with me uh they weren't you know they did online school but that wasn't like <laughs> particularly long mm-hmm. So that was a great experience. And then it's, then it's time to figure out what to do. And so I did a couple of things. First of all, I joined two boards of kind of small, smallish businesses, like about the same size as the business that I had run. That's super fun. And I love working with entrepreneurs. I love, I love coaching when I get the chance. I signed up to uh, be a coach of student entrepreneur teams at my alma mater, Michigan State. That was super fun and very rewarding. And then when it when it's kind of like, Okay, now I got to get serious about about something. There's two things that I'm I, I'm still kind of kicking around. So, one of them is I would love to find a great business that I could I could buy and run. And now everyone on Twitter wants to find a great business they could they could buy and run. So I'm not alone there. 
so like working through that search process. And then secondly, like if I find the right opportunity that I'm just in love with to do as a startup, I think I, I, I probably could do that again, although it's probably not my first preference. Yeah. Have you ever read the book, Buy Then Build? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Walker yeah. Dibel is, yeah, yeah. Uh, is yeah. a, a, a good, I shouldn't say good friend, but he's an acquaintance and I, we, yeah, yeah. We, we run in the same circles, love the guy. And, and uh, his first line in the first part of the book, John, was never start a business again. <laughs> And, that, and I read that when I was in the startup of Arcona. I was just like, right. yeah, I can relate by cash totally. flow. <laughs> so, and, no, that's that's a great, it's a good point. And I see both sides of it. Like, I think that if you are looking for stability, buying something, and you can do it, like buying something makes a lot of sense. I think that now that like being a search fund person is like a, is like a trend on Twitter, I think that more people are getting into it without knowing what what it entails. Um, like what it entails to run a business, like even if you could successfully buy it, like that's like 10% of the challenge. Wait, it's not just a multiple choice in a textbook? <laughs> yeah, no, that's like, that's the weird attitude, right? Like there's so many like influencers on Twitter or whatever, they're like, oh, you can buy a business for like no money down. And it's like, well, probably you can't, like you, Ryan can, but like you who's listening to this and like learning this on Twitter, like probably that person can't. <laughs> Yeah, you can lose hundred pounds in two weeks, and yeah, all you got to do is exactly. just take this pill and shake this thing. <laughs> right, but it's uh it's interesting. I want to unpack the search fund because, totally. like, as we were talking about, like in the five uh, exit options in our uh, five principles, the third principle in exit options, there's five of them. Second one is acquisition entrepreneur. It kind of came from the search fund Walker Dival space and going, mm-hmm. okay, there is a person here and here's how this whole work, thing works. But, you know, Walker spends a lot of time talking about the, you know, the people using an SBA loan to buy it, yeah. but there's the, there's the next level of the search fund where you're kind of combining the family office plus the, the acquisition entrepreneur. Explain the setup, you know, what you know about it, what, you know, the pros and cons of different structures and, and how you're going about that, that process. Sure. So, that world is so much more developed now than it was even a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So like search fund feels like where start a startup was like 10 years ago, like where like now there's, there's resources, like there's university programs, um, there's accelerators, there's all that stuff now. So someone who wants to learn about it, will have a, 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 a like an easy time finding resources. Um, mm-hmm. I had found a, a little social network called search funder. And now it's way bigger than it was a year ago when I first got on it, run by two search funders. And it's like the Facebook for search fund people, right? So mm-hmm. I got on there, learned a lot about it and found, um, found a partner who had been in private equity in the education space. Mm. So he and I now look at, look at deals together when they're kind of like relevant to both of our search criteria. Um, so first of all, like finding other people to work with, I think is, is really important. Like it's very lonely to try to just do this, do this yourself. Mm-hmm. And in terms of your question about about the structure, there's a couple of different structures that that we that, that we can consider, right? So one of them is, for, well, first of all, like there's a lot of deals that are small enough that I could just do it with my own equity and be okay, right? Like and there's equity and some debt, and yeah, you're off you, to the races. And- yeah, exactly. SBA is interesting. I haven't actually done an SBA loan, so I'm not like the world's expert on it. But like in theory, like you can buy a business, like you buy a house with ten or twenty or twenty five percent down. I think that people underestimate the challenge that's involved in that because you still have to get like humans to agree with you to lend you the money and like that you can actually run the business. And then you need to have a good enough business and capable of servicing that debt every exactly. single month for the next 10 years. Yeah, right. Exa- yeah, exactly. And of course, when you do SBA, you sign a personal guarantee, right? So if you honestly, like frankly, like speaking really frankly, someone starting out that doesn't have a lot of assets, like that makes more sense. And if you have, if you have like $10 million, right, and you have to like pledge $10 million to get a $10 million deal, like that's everything. Like that, that's everything mm-hmm. that you that you have earned and worked for. So that's something that people, I think, have to take really seriously as well. Well, and it's also interesting too, and I don't, we don't have to get too technical here, but like even a couple of years ago, we looked at businesses too. It's like, you know, you get to anything smaller than a $5 million enterprise value and you go, okay, if you put 20% down, let's say it's a million bucks. And you're going, okay, well, you have a $4 million loan and it has to be big enough to be able to serve it, pay the taxes, service the debt, and then have enough money to reinvest or hire yeah. someone to do the job. Yeah. And you literally get to the point where if it's below 800 grand in cash flow, 
the numbers almost don't work that well unless the person is, that is buying the company is going to do the job of the owner and make the six-figure salary too. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's basically right. I think that the world is different and easier if, if the buyer is willing to go run the business. But of course, that begs the question, like, is that buyer the right person to run that business? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, like we had certain, when I, when I ran my, my company, like we had search funders reach out all the time. I look at their backgrounds, like, well, you've never run a company like this. So can you figure it out? Like, probably like, you know, this person went to like a fancy business school, like you're smart, you probably figure it out. But I see all these people are like, I've left my job in banking and I bought a plumbing business. I was like, Godspeed. Like, I hope it works out for you. But like, that sounds very hard. <laughs> and I was in the AI, you know, PE world or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm do right. yeah. Right. It's, uh, well, it's, it's also interesting too. What I think is, honestly, I, I think this search fund where you have someone that can run a business like yourself and or anybody that's run a business and has experience and can find and syndicate enough equity where you can put enough down or the right size so you have enough cash flow to reinvest. Right? Yeah. It's not all exactly. leverage. I mean, and that's it's because like if you, if you think about the honestly, the, the problems that I see everywhere, John, I think that the search fund is actually gonna make the market more efficient because in like half of the people that go through our training, like you just need an acquisition entrepreneur to come in. You need a CEO already. You want to know in the next, you know, two to five years. Like this is the perfect fit because it's not enough for someone to just go in and buy the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this weird hybrid that works really well. How did you what, give some give some background on like when you were looking for this partner, you found the, the right partner. It sounds like what other where is this money coming from? So the people that are listening going, okay, so if I got you know acquisition entrepreneurs, search funds, or private equity knocking on the door, where's the money coming from? What's their intent behind it? So when you were looking to partner up with some money, where were they coming from? What was their intent behind the the, the investments that they're making? In terms of like the search funders that were looking at yeah, our like business, why are, or- why is capital why like why are people putting capital behind people like yourself? Like yeah, and in the search funding world. Totally. So there's a couple different sources of of capital that you see regularly. So one of them is people that are self-funded searchers who are going to go find a deal and then go try to syndicate capital either from friends and family. Um, like I see, I see a lot of deals that are like basically like we got ten dentists together to all put in a hundred grand, right? Like that happens all the time. There's uh, obviously they'll reach out to family offices. Small searchers will oftentimes try to find private equity firms in that industry once they're under LOI and try to get some participation there. You will also now see people who are funded searchers who generically, I'm sure there are many exceptions, are, are younger people that are coming out of fancy business schools that go raise a couple hundred thousand dollars from kind of professional investors to go run their search. And if they find the deal, those investors get to invest in the deal itself at a at a at a discount. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll 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 see both of those. It's it's so it, it's so helpful, John, to kind of explaining this because, like you said, that you you got reached out to a bunch, totally. and you know because these the searchers are whipping up a website and they've got their bio and their background. So like people that don't owners that don't know the difference of a private equity firm versus the strategic versus the family office versus the search fund. All they see is an out of the blue email right. or letter and then a website and they have no way to discern the difference of everything. Yeah. So to me, uh, thinking about it from the from the perspective of being an entrepreneur, I would see I would see two big differences. One big difference is that in if private equity wants to buy your business, they don't want to go run it. Like they don't want to get off the private jet and like go scrub the toilets at your business. Um, whereas the search funder, oftentimes that searcher will become the CEO of the business. That's a big difference because n- number one, it matters how how you transition. Like if you care about the legacy of your business, that's important. Number two, oftentimes private equity firms will try to incentivize you as the owner to stay in your business, whereas search funders are more likely to to like want you to transition out. The second big difference is that private equity firms generally have a pool of committed capital. Whereas search funders are going to have to get the deal, get your business under LOI, and then go syndicate, uh, syndicate the money, which is much more challenging, right? So I think that one of the things that is good if private equity wants to buy your company is that their chance of being able to close that deal is better because they know how to they they have the capital committed, they know how to raise the debt, 
they do this all the time, right? Like they're not first year out of, out of Chicago mm-hmm. booth and they've never done this before. Like they've, they've closed a bunch of deals before. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, man. Cause like, I wonder if there's a, if there's options out there. Like I think about like all so many of the companies that we're working with that are in that right size that could make that work where yeah. they they're like maybe 12 to 24 months out from like the value or an extra value pop that they want. Mm-hmm. And they want to try out you know, the fit of an executive and then have some sort of exit. I don't know if there's a way, if you've seen anything in the circles that you're in general, where like someone comes in, you get paid a salary because the person, the company needs a CEO to transition the other owner out. But there's a, a period, a transition period of growth yeah. that maybe you insert like a, a stock appreciation plan or some sort of, you know, synthetic equity to get to that new valuation. Cause like a lot of the times I see that people are like, oh my God, I just want an additional 20%. In value. And then I'd be willing because totally. then I could get more up front or then I could get to know someone. So there's like this period of time. Have you seen any unique structures there that kind of align the different timelines and motives? I here's here's the challenge. The challenge is most buyers want control. Um, mm-hmm. so they want to have 51% or more of the business. And most sellers, if they were doing that, I think <laughs> would would be challenged to to give that much up. But I think it's an intriguing idea because I've seen so many businesses in kind of like the, you know, one to $3 million enterprise value range, which the really dick way to say it is that they're undermanaged. The nice way to say it is that they are run by um, extraordinarily talented people whose niche is doing the job. It is not business, right? So like prototypically, this is the HVAC manufacturer who does $5 million of revenue because he knows how to install HVAC and he knows how to hire and manage a blue collar workforce, but doesn't know how to do marketing, doesn't know how to like do financial, yeah, strategic planning, yeah, all that exactly. stuff. Yeah, exactly. So if there's a way to combine those forces, like, yes, I think there's there's value creation there for sure. And not not to be too shameless here is like if someone went through our training because like totally here's how yeah. here's how it works so like yeah. it's so interesting because i could totally like two different polar opposite examples is an owner that understands okay mechanically here's how a business is supposed to work and run and okay now i actually get it and now i know why what i was doing was a job and i was sucking all the cash out not managing things properly now i'm willing to change for 12 to 24 months to get that additional value and yeah. to do the hard work for the last you know to get over the goal line, but I can totally, man, like they're like, we stopped working with people on the fractional CFO services. If they, if they don't go through the training, cause I'm like, I can't, we can't teach you on the fly. Yeah. Like we need to, and I can totally see, cause you're going in there to make the business your vision and they've got their own vision. And so you both want 51% and a new vision. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm, yeah, sorry to, sorry to double plug for you, but I'm, I'm such a big believer in, in your, in your training. And I hope you invite me back now that the world is, uh, is, is back. <laughs> in person again, in person, yes. because you're exactly right. And it's, there should be no shame in that, right? Like if you are, if you built a $5 million HVAC business, like that's incredible. Like you're in the, you're in the 1% of entrepreneurs totally. in terms of success in the world. Get some people to come help you, right? Like, I don't know how to install HVAC, right? I might know how to go raise debt, but I don't know how to do HVAC. Like, let's work together. <laughs> and there's your plug, right? Yeah, so, there's my plug, right? Yeah, exactly. So what what type of businesses are you looking for? I, I'm most active in two niches. One of them is education. So particularly like K-12 supplemental stuff is very interesting to me. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Second is... This is, this is kind of like, it's going to sound random, but senior senior care is really important to me. So we're looking at a couple options to do uh, like age at home stuff, either from a technical standpoint or just from like a like a simple like contractor mm-hmm. standpoint. That's a, it's an area where I'm passionate about. I've had to go through that in my own personal life, you know, in recent mm-hmm. years. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Super cool, man. Um, I got some uh, people I should put you in touch with in both of those sectors. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, we're getting close to the wrap up here, man. This has been an absolute blast, John. A um, couple questions that, uh, that's around and out. Uh, the first one is the word intentional. I like to ask everybody this because I love the meaning of the word and everybody's got slightly different meanings of it. So if you were to put a definition to you of the word intentional, what does it mean to you? Can I give a long answer? Is that uh-huh. annoying? No, we did- absolutely. We did, we do this exercise in my entrepreneurs organization forum all the time. It's called be, do, have. What do you want to be? What do you want to do? And what do you want to have? The have part is the least important. The do part is second. And the most important is like, what do you want to be? 
So I think it's like setting that up, figuring out like, who do you want to be as a person and then working intently to, to make that happen. That's, that's intentionality to me. Super cool. Yeah. I mean, it's a multi-dimension like goal that you're going towards. Exactly. Other uh, question is where's the best place to find you more information? Where are you hanging out? Totally. So um, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I'm happy to direct message with people on Twitter, go back and forth. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Shoot me a note. I, I love to connect with people. So I'm happy to connect with anyone in your audience. John, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I had a blast. Ryan, this is so much fun. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John. I had a blast talking to him. I hope you learned a little bit more about search funds, what they are, how they're structured, and how they might be a viable option to you if you're partnered with the right person that's going to be the owner-operator and the right capital that's behind it. And if you want to know more about search funds, how they compare to different options, how they compare to different deal structures and the valuations, go check out the Intentional Growth course. Go to arcona.io. We got a bunch of videos on the homepage that explain about the course, the curriculum, and our style. And you can go to the five principles tab up top. And we got a couple sample videos to give you a flavor of the value and the material that we have in the course. Thanks for tuning in. And I will see you next week.